December 6th, 1 p.m. on the East Coast Market Call. Swizzle here. Tough night in Rangerland, but you know what? You're going to have games like that, Dan Nathan. Um, Ottawa just was a better team last night, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. In just a few minutes, Carter Braxton Worth will be joining us. How are you, Dan? I'm doing okay. I, you know, you were all excited. You started market call yesterday um, by saying Rangers play tonight and, and you ended it by saying Rangers play tonight. Um, so let's not make a big deal of it. It's one game. I know you were happy about a couple of the wins that they had in the last uh, week or so. Um, you know, guy, 24 hours ago, we were talking about a funky market. And I think a lot of the things that we were talking about yesterday also a bit funky, um, like similarly funky mm-hmm. today. You know what I mean? When you think about it and, and, and again, you know, you said it's December 6th, we have two holidays, shortened weeks coming up at the end of the year. You know, we have an S and P that is up, you know, 19% of the year. We have a NASDAQ 100 that's up 44% of the year. We have a NASDAQ composite that's up 35% of the year. I go back to, you know, it's important to just recall that the equal weight S and P is only up 6%. Uh, the IWM, the Russell 2000 is up, you know, six and a half percent. Those have played a lot of catch up in the last month. And I just bring all of that up because, you know, there is a bit of a broadening out. Yesterday, we highlighted the fact that all like five or six of those mag seven were all down, yet the NASDAQ 100 was unchanged, the S&P similarly. Um, so, you know, let's, let's, let's keep an eye on this. You know, again, year end, maybe there was some tax loss selling in some of those big names. Some of these folks are looking to buy back, you know, some things new year. And sometimes you just have rejiggering of portfolios. You know what I mean? This time of year. Is that fair to say? No, it's all fair. I mean, you know, in in terms of losses, I mean, people they're not going to have losses in those Mag Sevens clearly, unless they did something completely out of bounds. But your point is well taken. I mean, you see funky things happen this time of year. But as they like to say, let's get to the rundown so the folks know what we're going to sort of drill down on. No pun intended. Carter's going to take a look at energy, and man, I I'm going to do a mea culpa now and again when Carter comes on. But of the many things I've been wrong about. Energy might be at the top of the list in terms of the commodity. That is breaking down. Airlines may be on the back of that, sort of going the other way. We'll take a look at some names, and we'll do an update on that Toll Brothers trade. They reported yesterday a good quarter. As you know, I mean, I'm not breaking any news here. Earnings are rear view looking, and it was a great quarter, and we probably thought that would happen. You know, my concern about the home builders, and we'll discuss, is the fact that the unemployment rate, I think, is going to start ticking higher. That's going to be a problem. But anyway, we'll get into it, Dan. Yeah, no, we will. And and again, you know, the toll was interesting just to, for us to see how the stock reacted, right, to what was expected to be good news after such a big run. So we'll take a look at that trade idea uh, in the options. It was bearish and, and it's obviously down a little bit, but it's not actually down that much. It was one of the reasons why I think we wanted to look out to January expiration, mm-hmm. but we're going to keep um, a close uh a, a close eye on that guy. Um, data this week. Um, we know that, you know, it's going to be the November payrolls is coming out on Friday. Our friend Peter Bookbar um, had some commentary about the ADP um, data um, this morning. Again, you know, we have yields working off of this sort of data. A lot of folks are just pointing to a lot of, you know, softening, softening data, which is exactly what the Fed wanted to do. Uh, and it appears to be happening. Um, you know, I was just on a call with a couple of investors. I heard the word Goldilocks. I'm glad you were not on that call. Oh, look at you. I'm glad you were not on that call. Um, You know, again, I I think what the market guy, at least what what the S&P is saying right now and with what yields, um, you know, at this kind of 
4.11 in the 10-year. 4.11, Carter called it, um, and we're going to do yields with him in just a couple minutes here. Um, you know, it's speaking to this soft landing scenario. At least that's what those major kind of indices and that and that number are flashing right now, right? Like that's what the stock market is saying, and that's what yields down from 5% to 4.1 are saying. Yeah, well, the S&P is clearly saying that um, without question. So the market seems to be championing that. But, I, well, you know this. I mean, for people yep. losing their jobs, it's anything but yep. a soft landing. And, and you know, we are obviously very sensitive to that. But, you know, if you look at what Peter's note says and you continue to see revisions of these jobs numbers, I mean, things are moving very quickly, I think, in the right direction maybe for the Federal Reserve, but clearly in the wrong direction. And I've said this for a while, and it hasn't played out, but – at some point, that continued softening, continued bad news is going to be bad news for the stock market. I don't think you can have it both ways, especially when the market's been dominated by the names that we talk about seemingly all the time. So below the surface, there's been damage being done, but it's being masked by a broader market that's seemingly impervious right now. Yeah. And, and the last point I just make on that, and we spoke about this, I think on Monday's market call guy, when Spotify announced, I think mm -hmm. 17% job reduction, that was 100, uh, 1500 jobs or so. Okay. So listen, you know, there's a company that was doing a lot of hiring in 2020 and 2021, right. And, and there was all those kind of pandemic dynamics as it related to the business and a lot of digital companies overhired, Right. And so, you know, we're seeing, this is the, I think the third cut I think I read in a year or so. And so if you start to see weakening demand, right? Like if these companies are worried about margins, right? They're worried about, you know, like kind of revenues kind of going like, like, like going the opposite way. What are you going to do? You're going to cut costs and they've mm -hmm. cut a lot of costs and they've actually at a time where they've spent a lot more money over the last year on a lot of AI related sort of stuff. Right. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think you you think that we could see an acceleration in the unemployment rate, you know, above four percent in the new year, which would be the thing that causes consumer confidence, I guess, to drop off pretty dramatically. And then it becomes this kind of virtuous cycle in a way. I think so. Nonlinear move higher, other people seemingly coming around. And if you think about what our economy is, for better or for worse, it's a consumer-led, basically credit-driven. Yep. economy. Well, let's talk about those two things. Credit has been contracting. I mean, we can throw up data that suggests exactly that. That's not me postulating. That's just factually true. And the employment picture is starting to go the wrong way. So as people lose their jobs and as credit's contracting in an, in an, in an economy that's driven by both, you tell me how it's going to continue to do well. And at a certain point, that's going to have impact on these corporations that comprise the S&P 500, not only their margins, but their earnings. So that's the way I look at it. Maybe it's yeah. too simplistic or maybe it's not simplistic enough. I don't know, but it's certainly happening right before our eyes. Yep. All right. Let's do it. Let's bring him in. Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. He is waiting in the wings. Oh, look at Carter. that. I don't have oh. my contacts in. I haven't taken a shower. I just comb my hair. <laughs> well, you know, before we get into that, Dan, <laughs> if you Wonka fans out there, uh, they, they wanted to create something called Smell-O-Vision. So it's fortunate that yeah. Willy Wonka or Gene Wilder or whomever has not created that. Because although, Carter, my sense is you could go a week without showering and you'd still yeah, smell I don't like roses. Yeah, got any big... <laughs> Let's not test it. Smells, but anyway, it's all good. So, yeah, a lot of moving parts. And it's, uh, I mean, I, you know, just to, we, we talk about all these macro, but if you think about the big macro things, there's the dollar, there are rates, there's gold, there's oil, and there's the equities. And, you know, 
rates were at 5% and, and there's this moniker that's created higher for longer. When you start naming things, right, like FANG or BRIC, whatever it is, it's usually right to take the other path. And so as soon as you hear higher for longer for 5%, rates drop to 4%, right? Uh, when oil was at, you know, $65 a barrel in May, June, hard landing recession, of course, what does it do? It goes to 95. When it was 95, people say it's going to go to 105. And now we're back at, at 69. Um, is try to pivot when we can and go against the grain if the grain is too extreme. So oil is cracked, so 95 to 68 here, whatever it is. Dollar is cracked, rates have cracked. And gold, which everyone hated, of course, has come back. The one that hasn't cooperate, at least from my point of view in terms of a thesis, is equities, right? Equities. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately that's the shoe that drops. And then equities also um, succumb and move lower in line with oil and rates um, and uh, the dollar. Well, Carter, let, 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 let's talk rates here because you've had this call. Um, yeah. I, I, listen, to be very clear, people, and it's all on worthcharting.com, and you can go back and look at the market call over the last few months or so. Um, you thought we would have a breakout in, in the 10-year yield above 4%. And um, I don't know if you thought it would get as high as 5 but you thought it would actually get going a little bit. And then you kind of called it that it was going to go back to, there's that 150-day that it's, that it's kind of flirting with or through today. And then the breakout level, which is what, 4 5 or something like that from August or so. So where is something if, if people got, you know, offsides, right, on, on the path to 5% and, and now, you know, higher for longer is interesting because it really was meant to speak about what the Fed was going to do with Fed funds rate, right? right? And so we've seen the 10-year come from five to four, right? But the Fed funds is still obviously at the higher bound. And we have a meeting next week at 5.5%. Okay. And we know that rate cuts have been pulled forward fairly dramatically over this last, you know, six, six weeks or so, or something like that. But if the Fed, you know, if, if, if let's say rate cuts get pushed back out next week for any reason, I'm just saying, I don't know. You know what I mean? What do you think, where does the 10 year find some technical support? We're kind of there. In fact, and if we could use it, maybe pull this chart a little bit further back to put in a little more uh, yeah. duration back towards the COVID lows are not quite that low. But this is, look, there are only three kinds of time frames. There's minor, intermediate, and major. And minor moves, not my bag, you know, okay, a week or 10 days, whatever. And major moves, look, Apple's been on a major move for the last decade. You know, okay, that's more buy and hold. But intermediate moves, those sort of two to five, two to seven, three to six months. That's where really great alpha can be created. And uh, this is a mature intermediate move. It's about seven weeks or thereabouts in the making, almost three months. Uh, we move from five to essentially four for mm -hmm. change. And uh, my hunch is, yeah, look at the, just from the lows, this is where you would have some sort of uh, bounce a little bit or said differently. If one has bought TLT or gotten long treasury bonds and the futures, do you do you stay as long as you were or do you trim? And I think the answer is you trim. We've come a long way here. So down to something of a level of support, it's just tactically I'd reduce the bet, I'd reduce a TLT position. And we might have charts uh, related to that, but if not, this is a fantastic chart. You can kind of draw the trend line with your eye from the lows of 2022. If we can look, uh, Carter, at a TLT chart, if Jacob or Stephen can pull it up, because I think the move that we're seeing today may have filled one of the gaps that we've had <clears throat> higher, and there you go. So there was that one little gap, I think, in between mid-September to uh, late September into October. You can see it with mm -hmm. your eyes. Uh, we've effectively done that now. So I guess my question, you just addressed it, but 
you know, now that we're doing work at the moving average, a moving average, by the way, that it's not flattened out yet. I mean, this could be a pretty interesting level, not only to get out of existing longs, but maybe as we used to say in the business to sell the double, which means get out of a long position and actually get short the TLT or bet that yields are going to sort of pop from here. Right. Look, it's a big move. If this were just a stock, we didn't know what it was. If you just was it a biotech, was it a large cap uh, staple that recovered or utility that's gotten some relief? It's a it's a 16, 17 percent move. And this, remember, is TLT. It's fairly low beta. It's just a rally to a difficult level and uh, harvesting in some form or fashion, whether it's a trim or exiting entirely. We're staying fully long and writing calls. Tactically, that's the play that comes to my mind. Hey, hey, Guy, um, so just divorcing it from the technical setup here, okay? Knowing that we have this November jobs report Friday morning, we have a Fed meeting next week, okay? What would be the fundamental scenario? What would be the news that you think the TLT could reverse here, meaning yields going back up in your mind, if, if you were trying to kind of marry these two right here? Yeah. So what, in, again, incorrectly, one of the things that I thought to answer that question would be continuing very poor treasury auctions, which we've seen on and off over the last month or so. So, you know, the fact that the treasury needs to raise debt in yep. the form of these auctions, and the auctions haven't gone particularly well. I think that's number one. Number two, obviously, we saw what Moody's did with China. You know, there's a chance that you could hear from Moody's and S&P again, probably on a Friday, you know, saying similar stuff about the United States. Neither of those things would be bond friendly, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, so, you know, that's it. I mean, it's that's the cross currents are significant in terms of you understand why yields are going low on a fundamental basis, because things are slowing down. The employment picture is getting worse. It stands to reason that yields should go lower. The flip side of that coin is we're in an environment now where Treasury needs to raise money. They do it vis-a-vis these auctions. Who's the buyer of last resort? Are they out there? And yields go higher on the back of that. So that that is my attempt to answer that question. All right. No, that's good. Um, hey, hey, Carter, really quickly, because you said yeah. the last shoe to drop would be equities, right? Let's look at the S&P 500, just a simple chart. Give us a sense when you look at a chart like this, and obviously it's pretty easy to draw that kind of horizontal line from the July high. Mm-hmm. When you look at an index of this size, the concentration of it, right? The the speed in which it just went from a four or five month low or so, right? To basically back towards those prior highs. What what does it mean to you? Like, do double tops in an index on an intermediate term basis? Again, this is going back to that period that you just defined, you know, four or five months or something like that. How much um, authority is in that level in the S and P five hundred right there? Right. Um, so, two things that I would point out: it, it, despite the concentration, and we know what it is, if you look at the percent change from that low of October twenty seventh, the S and P is up like twelve point two. The ecoid S&P is up more. Mm-hmm. So it has been uh, an issue, uh, not an issue, an instance of improved breath, meaning the ecoid RSP versus SPY is up 13 and change versus the S&P up 12 and change. So the concentration notwithstanding, all many stocks have participated. But the concept of a rally to a difficult level is what this is. And you could say, well, why is it a difficult level? Um, having sold off some 12% over three months, 27 July to 10 uh, 27 October, and then ricocheting like this, um, you return to the former high. The former high represents where purchases were made, that then purchases made that lost some 12%. And now all of that loss has been recouped. Mm-hmm. So people from the high, plus or minus, have the chance to, those who stayed for the duration of this, to get their money back to be made whole, to get out. 
And so that's what overheads apply is you're back to a level where people who had a nightmare of a situation could actually come out of the whole thing, no harm, no foul. And that induces sellers. There's interested sellers here at this level. And remember, that's only half the supply. That's the overhead supply. Then there's a supply from below. Whoever nailed it on the bottom, the most hapless retail trader who day four in the market or George Soros himself, when you buy something down there at that low at 4,100 and three, four weeks later, they flip the cards over and show you a 13% gain. You're like, huh, what? I yeah. think I should grab that. So this is what supply is from below, from above. It's a rally to a difficult level. If it finds a lot of difficulty, notice it's already finding difficulty. It's churning. It's stuck here as supply is hitting it from below and above. If and as it finds a lot of difficulty, it turns down. Right now, it's finding a modicum of difficulty. Um, but what double tops are is if you can't make it through the prior high and you really roll what oil or energy stocks ultimately did. Guy, so um, we follow Carter's work very closely. Uh, you referenced it, I think, on Monday's market call, that report he had out on Worth Charting uh, last week or two weeks ago about the unfilled gaps to the upside. And then you kind of highlighted the fact, well, there's plenty to the downside, Carter. Just so you know, we were piggybacking off your report mm -hmm. a little bit while you were not on the program here. Guy, you see that level, November 13th. Remember, it, it was that really mm -hmm. kind of cool CPI print right? That sent Off yields lower. Stock. So is that is that what you'd be targeting here to the first stop to the downside? And then Carter's rising 150-day moving average is going to be right near that gap, probably in the not-so-distant future. Yeah. So to answer that, if if I recall, I think the breakout occurred from 44 and a quarter or so. So you know, that's about 140-ish handles from where we're currently trading. So that's probably the first level of support. But you know, Carter, as you know, you know, you had come out with that report, that one unfilled gap to the upside. And I think there might have been five to the downside. And, mm -hmm. seven. you know, we talked about NVIDIA maybe being the catalyst. You know, we went through this a number of times. As it turns out, NVIDIA report was good, but the price action was bad. Yet the market still rallied, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, now you have you've finally exhausted that move, I think, to the upside. Now things sort of get interesting here. So to answer that question, Dan. You know, yeah. The first level of support should come in the form of, and I'm eyeballing it, about 44 and a quarter or thereabouts. Yep. No, that's it. Um, okay. All right. We did that here, people. All right. Let's talk. Uh, we just talked about crude a little bit. Um, Carter, this is our chart first. Um, mm -hmm. We're round tripping that whole move from the kind of July low, right? So we went from 66, 67 or so, got to 95. Here we are now. Um you know, listen, guys, I, I'm just hard pressed. You know, Carter, you just identified five or six major risk assets that if you are a, a player in the game, you kind of have to have your handle on, right? And the interrelationships mm -hmm. and the like here. And this is one where it's really hard. I, I don't like literally, I've been very honest for years and years and years on CNBC and our things. You know, for me, I've never had a deep knowledge of the commodity complex. You know what I mean? But like for me, sometimes I oversimplify a guy you started talking about. Maybe it's too simple or maybe it's that and some of your thought processes. You know, I try to simplify things all the time. I look at this and I say to myself, I, I, I kind of know some of the dynamics that were going on August into September, right? And now I just feel like everything that we've just talked about, what we think is about a weakening economy, a weak uh, Europe, um, you know, weird supply demand dynamics, weird OPEC plus stuff. And I just say, I don't know how you could look at this chart of crude oil and not say this is a reflection of the expectation of weak growth going forward. So guys, before we hit to Carter's charts, I'm just curious, like, how, how do you think about it? Because you could also say, listen, I get all that, but if the market's a discounting mechanism, then you know maybe it's discounted here and I want to take a crack on the loss. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. Listen, I understand 
you know, we've said for a while the weakening economy is clearly a headwind. But, you know, that was true if you go back and look. And I know you know this. I mean, that was true pretty much the entirety of this year, but specifically as the summer months started to move. And that's when you saw crude go from basically 65 to 90 ish or so. So, you know, that headwind was there, but the market seemingly was looking past it. And the same headwinds maybe have gotten worse. And now the market's given it entirely back. So, Clearly, crude is saying that the global economies, you know, there's going to be a demand problem. Maybe that's true. You know, I've thought yeah. for a while that you know, demand problem was something, but the supply imbalances were something entirely different that should more than offset or mitigate the, the demand risk. That hasn't played out. And you know, I'll tell you, now you're going to start to hear, and we had uh, Paul Sankey on Fast Money last week. And he talked about, you know, if OPEC doesn't get their shit together, I'm paraphrasing clearly, you know, if they're not able to sort of do something unified in earnest and get the price higher, you could then on the flip side of the coin, see the Saudis say, you know what, game's over. We're going to flood the market with crude oil, which they have done before historically, which is obviously bearish. So there's so many. And I, I, I want to be clear, you know. I've been bullish. I remain bullish. I'm certainly not bearish here, but that's the way I look at it right now, Dan. All right, Carter, walk us through what you're seeing in crude, and then let's definitely look at the XLE here because sure, we again, can stay with your chart first, just to make yeah, a point. Yeah. And this is the first thing that it's always important. If you didn't know what this was, you didn't know it was a commodity, soda, sneakers, sushi. The first thing you'd ask yourself, I, at least I would, is, wait a minute, this thing was sixty nine, seventy dollars a barrel in July. Not no barrels, sorry, price, right? 70. It rallies to 95 and now is back to 70. How is that possible? And and that's the point. Is the world economy changed that much? It just that things get in play, money moves in and out of things, and it's what momentum is all about. Is crude oil 95? Is that the right price? Or is 70? It was 70. It rallies to 95, back to 70. Uh, it's not about any of that. It's not about GDP. It's not about OPEC at the end of the day. It's just follow the dollars, right? And so if something's on the move, we want to try to play the momentum and mm -hmm. both uh, on the upside and the downside. But let's look at the, maybe I, we do have a chart here too, in addition to this chart. And um, what I would say is, you know, these lines, uh, we're breaking, we're breaching this well-defined uptrend line in effect um, just above, above, uh, after the COVID low. If you look at the same chart with different lines, um, next iteration, and we can toggle, you know, I think we've got a little bit more downside to go. And, and the downside is sort of down to that 63, uh, 64 a barrel. I would know it. And of course, and this is the irony, literally, when we were down there in May and June, the consensus was hard landing recession, crude going to $50 a barrel. And then, of course, it rallies. And so they change their mind. They say crude going to 105 higher for large. When you hear a mantra, when you hear a lot of people making the same statement, and they've even come up with a, a moniker like higher for longer, or hard landing or no landing, listen, close your ears and study the chart and go the other way. Let's take a look at XLE because I think, obviously, it's a pretty important component here. Yeah. The Energy Select SPDR Spider Fund. Now, I'll say this. You know, we had gotten up to levels. I think the all-time high was in the summer of 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Then we obviously cascaded lower with everything else during COVID, and we pushed right back up to it recently. So I guess it's sort of a good news, bad news. Good news is, you know, the, the strength that we saw, the bad news is we're starting to roll over here again, Carter. So, you know, 
you have these tops in play again. You know, we saw this this time last year. The XLE, I think, got up to 94. I mentioned 2014. Clearly, problems at these levels. You know, you're getting towards pretty su- critical support levels here around the $80 level. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I, it, it's it's the it's a circumstance where energy was such an outperformer off the COVID low, right? It's beta because it, its preceding condition was so shocking. No planes were flying, no cars were driving, right? So it was no one's in a boat, literally no no jet skiing, no waters. And so the point is, it was so depressed. It had the biggest rally of all assets, uh, all sectors, and it got so ahead of itself uh, in late 2022, early 22 that it's been churning and stalling ever since. And so the preceding outperformance or relative strength is now a year plus later, two years of underperformance. And the breaking of trend is is not nothing. As to the support level at 80, I mean, it's a little bit uh, sort of gray. My hunch is Mm -hmm. to remain short uh, and then obviously relatively short as a pair to the SPY. All right, let's talk about something else that is probably moving uh, a little bit on the oil, but a little bit on some fundamental news in the space. Let's talk about airline stocks. Um, Guy, you were talking about them on Fast Money. I think on Monday night, we were talking about the uh, Alaska Air bid for Hawaiian Airlines. Um, you know, we know that JetBlue is trying to buy Spirit. It looked like there was maybe some decent data or at least um, an indication that that deal might be approved. And it's interesting because, you know, if, if the Justice Department or the FTC or whoever blocks these sorts of things, they think it's anti-competitive. I mean, all you have to do is look at the debt on all of the balance sheets of these airlines and just wait until we have a recession because you know what's going to be anti-competitive when these things, you know, like like are, are filing for bankruptcy and, you know, some of the stronger players just are able to flex. So you might as well have a bunch of these things merge. In my opinion, I, I'm just saying, like that's my two cents on the on the fundamental take. Because it, since I've been in the you know in the business since the late '90s, how many airlines, guy, have we seen go bankrupt or be forced to uh, you know merge uh, under not so great situations and and need government bailouts and the like? So you know that's that's my two cents there. Um, but it seems like you know these guys have cut a lot of capacity and they're you know getting to a point where revenues are back to pre pandemic levels. Carter, this is our chart of the Jets mm-hmm. the ETF that tracks the group. You see your 150-day moving average. We're almost there. I mean, the pace in which that thing declined from those 52-week highs to new 52-week lows, like so orderly over the course of what, three or four months is pretty amazing. I'm sure you're not that surprised that you had this sort of ricochet. Well, uh, you know, along that descent, we played for a bounce at one point, didn't work. I mean, we're above the level at which it was attempted, but still a, a bad trade. Uh, I would just point out, obviously, this is a concomitant uh, move in relation to the, the oil sell-off. But you mentioned something which is ironic, right? Record revenues. They also have record debt, right? Mm-hmm, so yeah. it's a messy, it's a messy space. And we're all, all of us tempted to try to sometimes do some dumpster diving, right? Find something that's cheap. And, you know, Warren Buffett himself went into airlines at one point and knew it, knew he shouldn't and got out. Um, but anyway, let's look at, uh, I've got maybe a chart or two here of JATS, the ETF. It's a great uh, ETF, great symbol, of course. So um, the, the only thing that is a little bit telling is that that massive descent from June into the October low did stop at a prior low. And so it is a double bottom of sorts. We can see that in the next iteration, I believe. Uh, so this 25% rally, uh, and that's a lot, right? If you if you figure the S and P's up 13 off its low, the Russell 2000s up, 
maybe 16. This is uh, more. There's beta, there's leverage here. But I, I think this is an instance where you would strangle it. And I know people don't like doing that, but I myself would sell calls because there's a lot of euphoria now. Um, and I would sell puts in a wide band. And I think uh, the sequencing here, and there's the arrow, is that you get a plunge like that, 22 to uh, 15. You get a ricochet like this, 15 to 18. And if you were to sell sort of 19 by 17 calls, puts, even out just to the end of the year, December or next Friday or even January, I think you'll find that the sequence after a plunge and ricochet is a sideways as it as it finds its footing, neither weakening materially nor continuing to ricochet. And so what's likely here is uh, sideways, in my estimation, and that's what a pair of twos is. And if it indeed, that's what's happening and coming, selling volatility after this shocking volatility down and up is the play that makes sense to me. Makes sense as well. If we could put up a Delta chart, Jacob or Steve, in longer term, you'll take a look. We It's a name we actually did a decent job with for a period of time. If we could throw that Delta chart up, you'll see. What a great trading tool. And earlier this year, we thought we could trade up to, I want to say, I'm sorry about that, but $49 or so. Mm -hmm. That was a previous high that we had seen back in 2021. That happened. But I'll tell you, you know, I thought we would stop at the moving average on the way back down. Clearly, we didn't. We breached that. So here we are, Carterworth, before we let you go. And we're right here. And I think I know what you're going to say. You know, given the magnitude of the move higher than subsequently lower, we find ourselves at a level where it's effectively a pair of twos. And That's right. you know, maybe the way to trade this is, you know, if it shows relative strength, maybe it's trying to tell you something or vice versa. But you know, I guess given the bounce and given where we are, this is probably a no touch. Right. I mean, and that reflects the at least my sentiment on the Jets ETF, which captures the group. Um, uh, if it, just to see the surge in April, May, the plunge in July, the ricochet, and now after that kind of volatility, that sort of very directional. Um, uh, that kind of variability, you, I think, are likely to get some backing and filling and just sort of stay stuck here. And so, uh, yeah, pair of twos and take advantage of that any way you can. All right, Carter Braxton Worth, we appreciate you doing a lot of heavy lifting with us today on the charts and much more. Uh, you guys know where to find Carter Worth charting.com, old fashioned technical analysis, nothing slick, just charts. Thanks, Carter. We appreciate it. Bye, guys. All right, bud. Hey, all right, guys, let's whip through a couple things. I definitely want to update the Toll Brothers uh, trade idea from Monday in the options, um, but we'll do that last. I just want to kind of hit some single names, some kind of headlines that stuck out to me, and I think you have some opinions on. This one was in Citigroup. Um, this is obviously uh, a money center bank that has just really acted very poorly until very recently to many other banks, um, especially since the regional banking crisis in the spring. Uh, this one in Bank America, you know, thought to have some kind of issues as it relates to their kind of held to maturity, mark to market, um, you know, treasury holdings and the like here. That move guy from what, 38 bucks to where mm -hmm. it is right now um, at 48 bucks in a little more than a month is pretty astounding. We're back towards those kind of June, July highs, a little, you know, resistance there. And again, they were speaking at, um, I think it was Goldman Sachs's banking conference. And, you know, they're talking about some of the weak spots of their business, but they're leaving their revenue targets um, intact for the, for the out year. That's caused a bit of a rally thoughts here because i think this is also an area where it's easy to play catch up in a group like this when you think that we're like you know maybe we're soft landing and and, and the like here and with rates coming in that help helps that kind of mark the market sort of situation right if you have this duration mismatch and the like but 
This seems like also the sort of group where if some of the economic data continues to weaken, I just can't imagine it's going to be good for a money center bank like Citigroup that also has a lot of consumer exposure. Yeah, you know, I think people look, this chart is a mirror image of what we've seen in yields. A lot of these charts are and City has their own issues, very unique to City. I mean, if we do a longer term chart, you'll see that this is vast. There you go. I mean, this is a stock that's vastly underperformed for quite a period of time. And this is a bounce off what appeared to be logical support levels. And if that downtrend line is, in fact, uh, something, yeah, maybe we can bounce to that prior high we saw earlier this year, probably comes in around 53 or so. But I am not overly optimistic in terms of especially these these troubled banks. And I put City in that category. Wells Fargo's in that category. Probably the leader of the pack is Bank of America. All bounce. And by the way, you know, Doug is watching Doug Cass. You know, a few months or so ago, when banks were sort of cascading lower, he he dipped his toe in, and that was the right thing to do. But I think he would even admit that these have become trading vehicles. So maybe have a little more upside here. I'm not all that confident, though, that these things are going to go breaking out to the upside. Yeah. Uh, another headline that caught my eye too was a downgrade of PayPal guy. This was at Bank of America. They have a new CEO there. The stock was making. I mean, the stock. The stock at its lows. Late last, uh, in October, guy was down, I think, 86, 87 percent mm-hmm. from its 2021 highs. You see that it's been in a nice uptrend here. It's up nearly 20 percent or so. Um, you see the downgrade. They got a lot of work to do. They don't think the company is impaired by any means. Listen, this is a company that's very profitable. It's got a good balance sheet. Um, they're rejiggering their management structure and some of their kind of key initiatives. Um, at you know, $64 billion enterprise value, it trades, you know, pretty cheap in, in, in my opinion, right? It's just in a space, this kind of reminds me of 20 years ago, you know, of dot-com stocks. I know that's a mm-hmm. term we haven't used a whole heck of a lot, but fintechs were, you know, the dot-coms of that bubble in 2020 and 2021. And the way you just overlay, let's do a five-year chart of the PayPal guy. I mean, you, you, this looked like Amazon in 2003. I mean, like from 1997, you know, to 2003. We've seen that before. I'll just make this point. Uh, expected growth in EPS next year, 11% uh, on 8% sales. Sales growth trading at about 11 times with a gross margin that has come down a lot from, you know, uh, the pandemic sort of levels, but, um, you know, expected to kind of, you know, kind of settle in there in the mid forties or so. So this is one where I, you know, I kind of like, I know it's up a lot in a very short period of time. I'd be looking to buy on a bounce or, you know, on a pullback, maybe towards the mid fifties or so guy. Yeah. I think the analysts cut the price target to 66, which is obviously, excuse me. I think it's still a little bit higher than we currently are. This, you know, if you think about this stock, it was starting to move lower in a pretty precipitous way. And then obviously there was that rumor, substantiated rumor that PayPal was interested in Pinterest. I think, Dan, yeah. maybe you correct me, early 2022, that obviously scared some people They're like, holy shit, they need to buy growth. Yeah. That's not good. And then the stocks really never look, never look back. Of course, it'd be one thing if this was an unprofitable company, you know, burning cash and those types of things, but it's not. and. That's why I'm so perplexed by the whole thing. You know, it's one thing to be, you know, one of these high-flying tech stocks with a huge valuation that doesn't make money. It's another thing to have a reasonable valuation with a profitable company that trades poorly. I just don't really get it. So, yeah. look, can you can you sort of trade this one? Absolutely. But the downtrend has not been broken now for quite some time.
No, that's pretty well defined, which is kind of why I think you probably have another retest. It's kind of going to hit resistance here, that 200-day moving average, that downtrend like you just talked about. So maybe there's a little bit more, but, uh, you know, who knows? Um, staying within fintech, let's look at Robinhood really quickly. Um, you know you know what they say about a, a broken clock guy? Well, how, how often is it right? Uh, Depends on the clock. If you're yeah. like a 24-hour clock, it's just once. But if yeah. those ones that go to 12 and then 12 again, it's twice. Yeah. That's a little so, more you know. So after that earnings report, okay, the Q3 earnings report, we were sitting on the desk of Fast Money. The stock, I think, was down 20% or so. And I thought, you know, maybe this thing gets down towards eight. I don't have like a three-day rule or anything like that. You know, just from a technical standpoint, I'm looking at their balance sheet and the, and the overall enterprise value, looking at their, you know, kind of path towards, you know, expected profitability, maybe a year or two out or so. And I said to myself, this probably is okay down there. You know what I mean? Now, look what's gone on in such a short period of time, eight to, you know, it almost, you know, it was 11 and a half earlier mm-hmm. today. They had a trading update um, and they were talking about November volume, 75% of it was Bitcoin. And we know if we want to back this chart out a little bit, right? So after this thing came public, there was a lot of excitement about um, their exposure to Bitcoin, to meme stocks, a whole host of other things. Well, this thing has been dead in the water, right? For the last kind of year and a half um, or so. Um, but again, I, I just think it's interesting. The other, this is a headline I saw last week that SoFi is exiting um, their crypto business. If you have a crypto account at SoFi, you have to move it by December 19th, either liquidate your coins or move in some states where you can move them and the like. I just think of the demographic of these two companies and they do very different things, right? But they do have some crossover exposure. You know, obviously Robinhood is a perceived beneficiary, but you know, with the move in Bitcoin from 25,000 to 42,000. So all good in the hood. See what I did there. Um, what is this, you know, this sort of route, it's not something you would buy right here, but it's worth keeping an eye on because at some point, I've always thought that this is a unique asset. Like, I, I think you got to get rid of this. Well, uh, you know, I, I just think that, that that like some of the mantras that existed in and around this story in 2021 don't really exist anymore. And it doesn't make me so nervous right now that crypto folks are flocking back to this platform. It might almost speak to the ease of use of the platform. And I'm sure this company has learned lots of lessons from 2021, guys. Yeah, when we, we when this stock came public, you know, one of the things we said is that the exuberance around the price was growing and growing. And yeah. I remember saying it, the only thing innovative about Robinhood is the name and the hair on the CEO. And, <laughs> you know, that proved to be true. And the stock has gone effectively nowhere for the last year, year and a half. But, you know, in that nowhere flatlining, you've had significant moves. A move from eight to 11 and a half, 12 and a it speaks to a longer one. The shorter term chart will show you that, you know, maybe there's one more gap to be filled here on the upside. I want to say maybe around 12 and a half or so, if we could throw that chart up. But to your point, you know, this is probably where you're starting to think about exiting a long position rather than adding to one. And if you look in August, yeah, I was close. It was like 12 ish. So, you know, maybe you sort of fill that gap from early August or so on the downside fill it to the upside. But then I think you're pulling the ripcord, especially when you look at the fact that already today, the stock's traded 37 million shares, typically trades about six and a half, seven. So we're on pace to probably trade anywhere from eight to time, eight to 10 times normal volume, enough volume to get out any shorts that have probably been in the name uh, and maybe exhaust itself to the upside. 
Yeah. And this also speaks to, I think, you know, we talked about some of the broadening out right now on a day like today, where we see some of the mega cap winners, the the huge winners of this year down uh, on the day markets kind of unchanged. And we're seeing a lot of green on our fact set screen. So, you know, investors are kind of chasing some things that they think have the ability to run into your end. I get it. I used to do that an awful lot. All right. Last thing before we get out of here, Guy, Toll Brothers, on Monday's market call, we detailed a trade idea using options, looking the other way. We highlighted what you know this magnificent move the stock has had over the last kind of month and a half or so um the expectations into its earnings print um you know we just said listen i think i think looking into january into the new year i think you probably want to fade these because definitely if yields start to kind of hold in there and if unemployment i think this is your take starts to tick back up probably won't be great for home builders so we were looking at this thing on monday the stock was trading around 88 i was looking to january expiration was the 85 75 put spread. It cost about two bucks. So that was a $10 wide that breaks even down at 83. You can make up to $8 between 83 and 75. So let's pull up a two day chart here. So they reported guy after the close and it was good. And I mean, we expected it to be good. And you and I talked about it briefly um, as we started the show here. So this trade was really about duration. It was kind of getting through some of this near term sort of stuff. So I paid two bucks for it. Okay. So here's the deal. This is how I'm, I'm trading this thing right now. Okay. So we have it at, at what, about $90 here. So the stock was 88 when we put the trade on. So now we're about, you know, $7 away from break even, but I have, you know, over a month and a half for this thing to play out. Let's see how this trades into the close. Okay. If there are incremental buyers, um, if they're not, and it fills in the gap, then I think you have this kind of where you want it. So right now with the stock around 90, this trade idea is worth about $1.40. Again, paid $2. And we talked about it at the time, long premium directional, especially into events. I'm using a 50% stop. So if this trade idea was worth a dollar, I want to cut it. Okay. The probability of success at that point out to January expiration is not good. Okay. So let's keep our eyes on this. We will update this again next week. Let's see how the stock trades over the next couple of days. Paid to worth about 140. It's $2 in my face. I got a lot of time. Thoughts guy. Go back to the other chart real quick. And, you know, Toll Brothers, I believe made an all-time high today. You know, technicians will look at this and there's a potential for what we call in the business a doji star formation. Uh, we can put that in the notes if you want, or you can look it up yourself. And, you know, you think about it. We talked about it. We we said that earnings are probably going to be good. It wasn't about the backward looking earnings. It's about sort of the environment going forward for a lot of these home builders. And they've obviously been the beneficiary of a lot of not a lot of supply out there. Clearly a lot of demand. We had talked about the home builders all of last year into this year. I mean, I, I don't want to get bored, you know, bore people with this, but this is one of those moves that my sense is we're going to come back in three weeks or so from now and look at a stock that's in the low 80s. And if I'm wrong, we can go back and roll this tape and we'll have that conversation. But this feels like an exhaustion to the upside on what was a very good quarter, but I think the market's failing to take into consideration what's out there right now. All right. We covered a lot of ground here, Guy Dami. That was fun. We laughed. We did. We and I'm going to be the first to break this. Um, it's 142 here on a Wednesday. By the close of business today, you'll hear that the New York Yankees, the Bronx Bombers, have made a trade for Juan Soto of the San Diego Padres. Now, there'll be Met fans out there, all three of you, that will say, yeah, you're buying a rental and he's going to sign with the Mets next year. No, he's not. Because as I pointed out a number of times, Playing for the Mets is not the same as playing in New York. 
entirely different. And feel free to add me on Twitter if you have issues with that. But that's it for today. I want to thank Carter Braxton Worth, our audience. Obviously, FactSet Financial Data and Analytics powered by tomorrow. Tomorrow, of course, will be Thursday. And of course, if it's Thursday, Dan, it's not margarine. It's butters, bitch. Damn straight. We'll see you tomorrow. All right, see you tomorrow. 